All right, continuing tonight in Revelation chapter 20, after having exposed the great prostitute for what she is, and then having engineered the evil of the Antichrist himself in order to bring about her destruction, in chapter 19 we see the triumphant return of Jesus Christ, that very thing that we looked at this morning on the day of the Lord when um, when the sun is darkened at midday and all of Israel mourns as mourning for a firstborn child, the pride of Jacob is fallen and God raises up a fountain of grace and pleas for mercy when they look on Him whom they have pierced and immediately following the victory that Christ has over His enemies and treading the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty, it says in chapter 20 that then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in its hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now last time we were together we looked at the binding of Satan and all of that and all of what that means the way when he was it's 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 the ultimate expression of what happens in chapter 12 when he is cast out of heaven to the earth and the scripture says that a voice in heaven said that there was rejoicing in heaven because the ancient serpent had been cast down and was no longer able to accuse the saints before the throne day and night. But woe to you, O earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Well, here it's not just heaven that is rejoicing, but indeed all of the creation is rejoicing as he has been locked away for a thousand years so that he specifically might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, if you kind of if if you were kind of like me and maybe you grew up in a church that um, you know had some kind of two or three kind of basic ideas about the nature of the consummation of the age, but they were kind of soft around the edges and fuzzy and didn't really know quite how they all fit together. If, if that's the kind of scenario you grew up in, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, most of us that grew up in evangelicalism in the United States in the last hundred years have pretty much fallen into that category. If, if, if you grew up in that kind of scenario, you might be looking here and you're a little surprised because you say, what is going on with this whole situation with the nations? I thought the nations had followed after the Antichrist. After all, we just saw, uh, you know, Armageddon where all of the nations and the kings of the world were drawn together to battle and Christ come and wipe them out. And so if they've all been wiped out and all you've got left is these now newly converted Jews and the saints that were faithful and didn't follow after the Antichrist or take his mark, how is it that you can have this statement that the reason he's locking him up is specifically so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. What nations are there supposed to be for him to deceive? Shouldn't they have all been destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon? And it, it, um, it, it's 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 like a it's like a card player or a pitcher with a tell. It tells about the it telegraphs. 
um, the way we think and, and some of our deficiencies in the way we approach the text. And what it often telegraphs is we have um, a focus in our eschatology that is based solely in the New Testament without all of the background, which quite frankly is the majority of the eschatology in Scripture that is found in the Old Testament. The kings of the earth and do indeed come to make war on the Lamb in Armageddon. That's in Revelation chapter 9, verse 19, where it says that I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. But that does not necessarily mean... I mean, when was the last time you saw anyone go out to war? When was the last time you saw any king, any executive, any potentate take his nation to war and take every single one of his subjects with him? When has this happened? We threw the full might of the U.S. government um, at um, the Axis powers, uh, what, 80 some odd years ago now? And yet, way more people stayed home than went to fight. This is the nature of going to war. The reason you go is because there is something back home that is worth fighting for. There are women, there are children, there are, are, are old people. There is, there is society there that is worth fighting over. And if we had read the book of Daniel, which is the front counterpart to the book of Revelation as well as we should, we would know that in chapter 11, verse 41, it says that He, that being the Antichrist, will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of His hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. And so when you're reading in Daniel in chapter 11, and you're reading about the battles that occur between the Antichrist and the nations around him in the first three and a half years of his reign, what you find is not kind of the picture that we often get from eschatology that's drawn solely from the book of Revelation itself, which speaks specifically of the last three and a half years of his reign, where it seems that you just get this kind of superhuman figure that just explodes onto the scene out of nowhere and, and, and everybody kind of bows. That's not the case. There is a very real struggle. There's many very real battles. As a matter of fact, early in his career, he suffers more loss than he wins. And there is a significant portion of the population that are not believers and yet simply do not fall under his boot. And there are plenty of folks that you can look at. If you want to go back to World War II as an example, and I think it's a pretty good one because it's the last time in history, it's the nearest to us, that we had a definitive example of little a Antichrist in Adolf Hitler. And when you look, the majority of that that fought against him was fighting for the side of righteousness, but there was plenty that fought against him. Um, Stalin, anyone? <laughs> that was not fighting against him on behalf of righteousness, but was simply fighting against him because they had their own unrighteous agenda that didn't line up with his. And they didn't fall under his boot either. And that's exactly what we see. If you want to see what the post-tribulational nations look like between both those who were fighting against him because they were the people of God and those that were fighting against him because... By golly, if anybody's going to rule, we'd rather it be us than him. Then you see that in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14 through 21. In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 16 and verse 14, you see a description of what the 
global politic of the day will look like at Christ's return. And in verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I have gave to their fathers. Now this is, this is the, I mean we're, it's crazy how the Lord brings you all to the same place every now and then. This is, this is what we are seeing being talked about that we looked at this morning out of the book of Amos in the day that Jacob's pride is broken. Now when Jacob's pride stood, the Lord was speaking through Amos and other prophets like him and going, man, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to scatter you. You will be no more. I'm going to seize your cities. I'm going to tear down your walls. You'll go straight out through the breaches. They'll draw you with hooks and you will be no more. And that's exactly what happened in northern Israel. The Assyrians showed up. They did everything that God swore by Himself that He said they would do. And northern Israel dissolved. And they dissolved to such an extent that they lost their cultural identity. You understand the reason that we refer to the people of Israel today as Jews is because with the rare exception of a handful of Levites and a couple of guys from the tribe of Benjamin, the only people that can confirm Jewish ancestry anymore is the tribe of Judah. Because the northern kingdom just went away. Judah got taken into captivity in Babylon, but they were sent back by Cyrus after 70 years. They maintained their identity. They knew who they were. These people, they just dissolved into the midst of the ancient Near Eastern countries. There are people walking around out there with the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flowing through their veins and have no idea. No idea. But the Lord knows. And those that are left alive on this day when Christ splits the eastern sky and they look on Him whom they pierced are going to find out that they had a heritage that they never understood. And so the Lord says when this happens, it is going to eclipse the events of the Exodus. And no longer will they say, as the Lord lives who brought us out of Egypt, but instead as the Lord lives who brought us out of the north and out from the midst of of the nations to give us the land that He had promised to our fathers. He continues in verse 16 and says this, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their inquiring concealed from my eyes. But first, I will double repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To You shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can a man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my, and my might. 
and they shall know that My name is the Lord. Jeremiah says that on the day of His return, when they, like we talked about this morning, man, the return of Jesus Christ is self-evident. If anybody has to say to you, look, He's over here, or look, He's over there, they've got to make their case. If they've got to make their explanation, they're wrong. His return is self-evident. And on the day that He returns, these people that are left of all of these nations are going to look at everything they inherited from their fathers, all their ways, all their culture, all their religion, and say it was worthless and it was lies. And what is true is what the Lord has done. And the most recent thing He has done is is glorify His saints and save His people Israel from amongst the nations. And so if you need hunters to hunt them, we'll be hunters. If you need fishers to fish for them, we'll be fishers. We are going to bring them back with everything we have into the land. This is the geopolitical climate of the day. These people are Gentiles that were unsaved and yet not following after the Antichrist when Jesus returns and having seen Christ in all His glory decide that what they have inherited is lies. They will function to help the scattered Jews back to Zion and bear witness to the vindication of God's sovereign choice in Israel to be the very subjects of the kingdom of which the saints are given to govern. So it looks like this. You know, how do you, how do you if Christ said that his people will govern the earth, you gotta have an earth to govern. If 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 Christ said that you will judge the nations. There has to be nations to judge. And so what we see is the millennial reign. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. The reality is, is that upon His return, Christ Jesus will rule the nations of earth, and He will rule them from a throne in Jerusalem. Now once again, this seems to be, this seems to be right in the wheelhouse for whatever reason of Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah in chapter 3 in verses 15 through 18, speaks of the rule of Christ from Jerusalem in this way. In chapter 3, in verse 15, he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and have been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, this is how we know we're talking about the return of Christ, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. I mean, you got to understand, when Jeremiah wrote this to these people, I mean, it's still a profound 
those Jews are still missing it to this day. As a matter of fact, there is a um, there is a very very well funded and somewhat very secretive foundation um, that is known as the Temple Mount Foundation. Um, that well, nobody really knows what they've got exactly. One of the things what what they intend to do is they are those that that say that they are preparing for the day that the Jews once again control the Temple Mount. And they want to, if when that day comes, and they know prophetically that it's coming, when that day comes, they want to be basically as ready to go as you can possibly be ready to go. And so they want a situation where basically they've got um, the temple in a warehouse somewhere. I mean, they, they've got the, you know, the way the temple was originally built, if you if you look back and you read at what the Lord commanded um, of Solomon, none of it was built on site. As a matter of fact, God forbid that there would be the sound of a single working tool. No sound of the hammer, no sound of the chisel on the side of the temple. It was all to be pre-constructed off-site and then assembled on-site. So this kind of works very well into their hands because that's the way it was done the first time. And so they won't tell you how much they've got done and they won't tell you how much um, funding they have. But I will say this, one thing historically about the Jews is they have typically been pretty well funded. Um, They have a knack for that sort of thing. And what they have shown is absolutely amazing. If you go down to the Western Wall um, to to this day, it's been there for about 20 years at this point, you can walk down there and um, inside of this glass pillbox that's bulletproof glass that's about a foot thick stands a, um, a hand-hammered menorah that weighs almost 700 pounds made out of solid 24-karat gold. And that's just the lampstand. And they say there's plenty more where that comes from. These people are zealous for the, you understand that, and we're out of time on the notes anyway, so I'll just say this real quick. You understand the statement that there will come a day when, when literally the Jews will sign a pact with the devil. Literally. And what they will do with the Antichrist is they will divide the land for gain is the statement that is made in the prophets. This is something that Daniel talks a lot about. They will divide the land for gain. And so when, when you look at Israel historically throughout the years, buddy, the last thing they want to give you is any land. And the reason they don't want to lose any land is because it is the testimony of the promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. I mean, this is, this is it. This is the thing we've been talking about this morning. That Look, Israel is a spiritual reality. It has a physical manifestation that bears testimony to that reality. One of the physical manifestations, the big one, is the Jews controlling the land that was promised to Abraham. This is the manner in which they established their place and their authority and the testimony that they are the people of God. And so historically, buddy, what, I mean, you think other people are zealous for their home countries, man. They will claw, bite, and 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 eye gouge for every last little grain of sand they can get their hands on. I mean, you know, historically, um, you know, the events that occurred at Masada, three hundred and eighty some odd Jews, I think, something like that, 
held off 10,000 Romans for 15 years versus just wouldn't give up. And then when it came all the way down to it at the end of the day, they all went, when, when they knew they were finally going to be overrun, and then, man, those Romans, they built a siege ramp that, because they had 3,000 feet to the top of this thing, they built a siege ramp that goes like 15 miles out into the desert in order to get up there. And when they did, they all went home and killed their families, and then they all take turns drawing lots and killing each other because it's a mortal sin to commit suicide until they got down to the last guy, and he threw himself on his own sword. He drew the short lot. I mean, they were serious about keeping their stuff. Even in the modern era, every time you see Israel seed any land, and you can look back at all the guys that did it, they die an untimely death just like that. And so you ask yourselves, why in the world would they divide the land for gain? Why would they give away the Holy Land? And I think the answer is pretty self-evident based off what happens in the unfolding narrative. It's never specifically said in Scripture, but they divide the land for gain, and the next thing they've got is the Temple Mound. Now today, Islam makes a big deal about the Temple Mound, but the reality is, is in their theology, the Temple Mound is only the third holiest site in Islam, not the second or the first. Why would the Jews divide? What, what in the world would be so important to them that they would give away the Holy Land? And the answer is the Temple Mount. And the reason that they're willing to give away the Temple Mount, contrary to popular belief, is not because they're such religious zealots that they just don't care about anything else but being able to sacrifice these animals. The reason is, is because they believe the thing that is causing God to not bless them and by not blessing them not allow them to ascend to their place of preeminence is the fact that they can't worship. In the mind of a zealous Jew sure it's like, it's like the cultist that thinks the world is ending on April the 4th at noon you'll write any old number on a check that you want on April the 4th at 11.15. Not going to have to cash it. This is the way they look at these things. They, so they think that if they can get that temple mound back, it doesn't matter if we give all the rest of the land away. Give us that temple mound, and as soon as we can get that temple set back up, we will own the earth. We'll take anything that the Lord sets before us. Critical to that. The linchpin is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And so for the Lord to be able to say to Jeremiah, there is a day coming from you when not only will the Ark of the Covenant not be in Israel, but nobody will even miss it, is a statement that is so far outside of the box for a Jew that it can only speak of a time after the end of the age when something totally different is going on. It can only speak of a time when the Lord God Himself is directly in their midst. They shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord 
and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart in those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage and that day when Christ reigns when he rules over the nations when they have wept like one weeping over an only son for the one they have pierced when he sits on the throne in Jerusalem buddy they won't be worried about the ark of the covenant at all the covenant stands before them in glorified flesh here is the remission of your sin here is your propitiation here is the one that makes you holy he will rule for a thousand years with a rod of iron and that rule is administered by the members of the first resurrection where they will be priests and they will reign and that's where we'll pick up in two weeks